today's scripture selections this morning are found in 1 Samuel chapter 26, verses 1 through 14, 17, 21 through 25, and chapter 27, verses 1 through 2, and verse 12. Take a moment to turn to the text in your Bible to follow along, but the reading will also be up on the screen. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakalah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. And David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the, enemy was, while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed? and be guiltless. And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head, and the jar of water, and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake for they were all asleep because of a deep sleep from the Lord that had fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and Saul recognized David's voice. And Saul said, I have sinned, return my son David, for I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Chapter 27. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and 600 men who were with him, to Achish, 
the son of Mark, king of Gath. And Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Now you can be seated. Thanks, Vivian. Well, good morning. It is good to be here with you. If you're new with us, I want to especially welcome you. This is what we do at the Parks Church. We preach through books of the Bible, and uh, we're making our way through, as you guessed it, 1 Samuel. And so we're going to tackle two chapters uh, this morning. Uh, And before we jump into the text, which you'll want to keep your Bibles uh, on your lap or maybe those uh, 1 Samuel notebooks that you have uh, there to to take some notes as we cover uh, quite a bit of ground today in two chapters. Just want to highlight a couple things uh, going on, uh, really, in, in the upcoming weeks that I'm really excited about here at the Parks Church. Uh, and the first one I want to start with is the Blended Families Couples Retreat, uh, which is happening uh, next weekend, really Friday and Saturday. And this is something we are so excited to offer here at the Parks Church. Uh, first time ever we've offered something like this to to build and develop uh, within that community, particularly here at the Parks Church. Um, and as they said on the announcements that most of you missed. Um, Uh, Just uh, kind of removing this stigma uh, from, especially within the church community around that idea of of divorce and remarriage. And so if if you find yourself in that position, if you find yourself as a blended family, and many of you know my story uh, as well growing up in a a blended family as my parents were uh, divorced and are now uh, remarried as well, uh, I am extremely passionate about this and the development of this community within uh, the body of Christ. And so that somebody who finds or people who find themselves in that situation could never say of the Parks Church, hey, we, we felt like outsiders, or we felt like there was a, a, a stigma here at this community, but no, they felt like that this community understood, and, and this kind of ties in even where I'm going to go in uh, the sermon today, uh, the complexities of this world and of this life and how we can reinforce the gospel in all of those complexities, amen? And so um, don't let anything hinder you uh, from coming to this uh, retreat. And uh, we, we mean that if it's financial hindrance of anything like that, we want to remove all barriers for you to, to attend that. And so that's Friday and Saturday. If you have more questions about that, our pastors and elders and their wives will be down front. We'd love to, to answer those uh, questions as well or just talk more with you uh, on that. And then uh, the following weekend after that is, is what? Easter, good, you know, Easter, Easter Sunday, and uh, we kick off Easter weekend on Good Friday, and uh, the last two years we have done a walkthrough at TPC Commons, kind of a, a Good Friday experience, um, and, and we're not doing that this year. Uh, we're going to do a Good Friday service um, here, one service, six o'clock, uh, to, to fix our minds and our hearts upon uh, the cross of Jesus Christ, uh, his, his, his death particularly on Good Friday, and so I want to encourage all of you to be here uh, at the that uh, service. And, and really, uh, spending all weekend together as a community, uh, meaning Good Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, is really intentional. Because if there's one weekend that we should spend as a faith family all together, it's, it's that weekend. It's Easter weekend. So that for us would begin on Good Friday, and then uh, Saturday, uh, we do what's called an Easter festival, um, right? Uh, that, that in between Friday and Sunday, uh, we, we celebrate with, with our families and with, with our kiddos, particularly down at TPC Commons. And, and then Easter Sunday morning. It's going to be an incredible morning here. We're going to keep the two service times the same, um, which uh, 
probably should, should scare some of us because this is going to be an absolutely packed room in both services. So get here early. Uh, come ready to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You want to invite your family. You want to invite your friends. This is going to be a great, great service for us. And then uh, the, the, the party doesn't stop there. The next Sunday, after Easter Sunday, uh, the square is going to be shut down, not for us, for, East, uh, for, uh, for uh, Arts and Bloom, but uh, we're going to jump on the square being shut down, and we're going to baptize some folks on the square. And so immediately following, at 10 a.m., immediately following Easter Sunday, the next Sunday, we're going to have another celebration of resurrection life and resurrection power with water baptisms. And so do not miss any of those things. And for some of you, you're sitting in here, and when I say water baptism, the Spirit's doing something in your heart because you need to be obedient to the Scriptures. You need to be water baptized. And uh, you're like, well, Kyle, I missed the class that's going on right now. Well, by the way, you could go there right now if you wanted to. No shame if you got up and walked out and went to the class. But um, maybe you just missed the class. You're like, oh, I'll, I'll catch it next time. No, you need to be water baptized. And so we'll make it happen. Uh, we can meet with you. We're happy to sit down with you uh, and talk through water baptism. But you do not want to miss that service. And, and most of all, though, if you haven't waded into the waters of baptism after um, professing uh, your faith in Jesus Christ, you need to do that. And so, all right, that's, that's what's coming up. Really, really excited about all that, and you can see all that on the Church Center app. But uh, let's, let's, let's get into the text this morning, and I've got to be honest with you. Um, these are two very uh, difficult, particularly chapter 27, two very difficult chapters in the book of 1 Samuel. So I'm going to take these two chapters together intentionally, and I'll, I'll tell you why at the, at the end of, uh, of the sermon. But chapter 26, for those of you who have been with us, should be a little bit of deja vu, right? Deja vu from chapter 24, right? You remember chapter 24 where um, Saul, where David and his men are hiding in Engedi in a cave, and Saul just so happens, right, mistakenly chooses a cave to relieve himself, and that cave that he walks into the front to relieve himself is, wouldn't you guess it, David's cave, with all his men sitting in the back, and, and, and you know the story, and I'll explain it a little bit more, that, that David chooses not to take his life, and the Spirit does a deep work in David in, in that chapter, and it's just this beautiful thing. And some scholars, um, I don't trust these scholars, but some scholars would say, hey, this is just another telling of that story. This is just another telling of that story. But the problem with that is, is that if you believe this is just another telling of chapter 24, you actually miss the significance of what chapter 26 is all about. It is in no way the same story. It is in no way, and even though there are some similar, there are many similar things that take place in the sequences of the story, in no way are they the same story at all. And in fact, you would miss the point if you believe that. This is not unlike our Bible. I believe it's in, in Mark chapter 4 and in Mark chapter, or Mark chapter 6 and Mark chapter 8, where Jesus feeds the 5,000, and then he goes again and he feeds the 4,000. I mean, people say, well, that's just kind of the, the same story. It's not. These stories are proving and showing different things about, in that case, Jesus, and in this case, about David, but also about Saul, and most importantly, about our God. And so this second story moment, if you will, in chapter 26, as we begin to unpack that, is an opportunity to prove or disprove Saul's confession or Saul's words at Engedi in chapter 24. Do you remember Saul and how, you know, in David sparing his life, Saul was like, you're the king. You, 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 you're righteous. 
You're merciful. You didn't take me. Remember all those flowery words? And it was like this, this pseudo repentance that Saul had in 24. And what do we always say about repentance? How do you assess repentance? How do you know if repentance is true? Faithfulness over time. And so here, faithfulness over time, you come to chapter 26. And what is Saul doing again? That's right. Pursuing David in the wilderness to kill him. Chapter 20 says, uh, use the word seek David. That word seek means to take his life from him. Make no mistake what Saul is continuing to do. And so what does 26 prove about Saul? What does it prove about his, his words, his repentance in chapter 24? It was all lip service. Saul is still pursuing David with full military strength. Here's your answer to whether or not Saul was being honest. The difference also in chapter 26 as opposed to chapter 24 is that no one is surprised. David is not surprised by Saul in this chapter, is he? No one is. Saul is taking 3,000 of his strongest and best soldiers with him, and they get wrong information, which is kind of funny, about where David actually is. And so they go to that place, and David sends spies to find out what Saul's doing and where his men are moving and going. It sounds a lot like Joshua, doesn't it? Send, sending spies out to see. And, and, and you have David and his spies, they, they return back, and, and Saul is camped out there. And now David, not being surprised by anything or anyone that Saul is doing, can now go on the offensive. Whereas before he just received Saul into his cave and was surprised by it, now David has a choice. What am I going to do about this? What is, going, what is David going to do in this moment where he knows the, the words from Saul in chapter 24 meant nothing? What's he going to do? The choice and the power now rests in David's hands. And the question I want to raise in this moment in our text is, what would lead David? What will we see that is leading David in this moment? Now, reminder from last week's text, David doesn't always make the correct decision. If you remember from last week in chapter 25, at the beginning of, of the chapter, it says what? Samuel died. Samuel died. And, and it's, it's, it's really strange in, in the text that that's all that's given to Samuel. Like, Samuel died. Move on. Well, David is, I believe in that time, emotional about that death. He and Samuel obviously were close. Samuel is the one who anointed him. And David, out of his emotion, if you remember from last week, reacts to Nabal. Reacts to Nabal going, David who? And David reacts, how? Inappropriately. Until who? Abigail, right? This Christ figure in the story steps in and shows David, and covers Nabal, and shows David what his heart as a king should be about, mercy, and righteousness, and faithfulness. So don't, don't make a mistake to think that David always makes the correct decision. We'll see, even going further in First and Second Samuel, that David doesn't. But I want you to watch for the Abigail effect all throughout First Samuel 26. I think Abigail, is, 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 she's, she's in the text in terms of an amount of time, such a minor figure, but the, the way in which she uh, pictured for David mercy and righteousness and faithfulness, the way she communicated to David stuck with him, right? 
And so it will be carried on. So, so watch for it. I'm not going to unpack it too much, but just watch for it. And so turning into the text, go to uh, uh, verse 6. Still wondering, okay, what's David going to do? Well, who's going to lead David in this moment? What's going to lead David in this moment? What decision is he going to make with Saul there trying to kill his life? He knows that his words don't mean anything from the prior chapter, right? The prior event like this. And then verse 6 says, Then David said to Elimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, Who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai, who's a warrior, said, I will go down with you. Okay? Now, just on the surface, okay, you have a guy who's pursuing you to take your life, to kill you, and now he knows that the words that Saul have said prior don't mean anything. They don't carry any weight. He just looks at his soldiers, potentially his best soldiers, and he goes, who's going to go down with me to Saul? This is not looking real good for Saul, right? He's like, who's going to go down with me? And Abishai raises his hand. He's like, I'll go with you. Let's go finish the job, right? I'll, I'll go with you, David. Like, imagine you don't know the story, right? Things aren't looking very good for Saul uh, right now. And so the way in which Saul would have been sleeping as Abishai and David head to him is, is that the, the king or the leader would have slept in the middle of a circle, right? So think about ripples uh, on, on, on water. The 3,000 men would have slept in circles around Saul, okay? So think about that. And Saul would have been able to be identified. I, can you imagine, just first off, one guy or two guys in the middle of 3,000 men just circling them. Saul would have been able to be identified because his spear was by his head. And he was laying there and he was sleeping. So easy for uh, David to identify. But I want to look at Abishai. This guy who volunteers to go with David. What do you think is in his mind? Do you think he's thinking, yeah, I want to go with you because I want to grab a jug of water and Saul's spear. I want to walk through a landmine of 3,000 soldiers to get a drink of water. No, Abishai has something else in his mind, and we know it by verse 8. Look at it in the text. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Ring a bell back to chapter 24. Look what God's done for us, David. God has opened a door to end this wilderness running. Let's take matters into our own hands. And so look at it. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I will not strike him twice. Like it's almost like the author's almost being like comical here, right? Abishai's like, listen, we won't make any noise. It'll be one strike with the spear, not twice. Trust my ability. Trust me, David. And notice that Abishai doesn't even look at David and go, hey, do you want to do this? You want to take care of business? Because David, really, he's been coming after you. He's been, he's been seeking your life. Now, probably at this point in the text, probably something like five to six years, Saul has been pursuing David in the wilderness. You see, I think Abishai is a little bit more cunning than that. Abishai remembers chapter 24. He goes, yeah, I remember last time, David, you, were, you had this opportunity and you didn't take it. And so Abishai goes, I don't even want to put that on you anymore, David. Let me do it. He goes, I will do it. Um, let me just make a 
personal connection here. Um, there's always an Abishai around us. Do I think that Abishai is being unreasonable here? No. Do I think he's operating outside of the will of God? Absolutely. And he knows that David knows the will of God. He knows, he knows that David knows that he will not take the throne by putting things into his own hands. So Abishai is willing to take the fall. Abishai is willing to look at David and go, listen, I know convictionally you can't do this, but guess what? <laughs> I can. And so David has a choice, doesn't he? He could go, Abishai, hmm, all right, man. You're willing to step up to the plate? I can't do it, but I'm going to turn my back. The sin of omission. The sin of just going, yeah, I, I didn't have anything to do with that. I didn't touch him. I didn't pin him to the ground with one. But listen to me. David, if he would have allowed Abishai to do this, would have been just as guilty as Abishai. In our lives, we have to be careful when these moments arrive where we would say, listen, I didn't contribute to that. I didn't participate in that. I literally had nothing to do with that, so I'm just going to walk away and wash my hands of it. Be careful because you might be just as guilty as the person participating in the sin personally. There's always an average. I think about that with um, Jonah. Um, and when he's, when he's running from God, right, the call of God comes upon his life to go to Nineveh. You know the story. And he's like, uh, no, like, I'm not doing that. And what happens, like, he looks up, and, and, and there in the harbor is a boat, right? Like, I think in many ways, Jonah's like, see, Lord, you provided a boat for me, right? And so what does he do? He gets on the ship. And he takes it, right, away from the will of God. This is that kind of moment for David with Abishai. There's a moment where David can kind of sidestep being personally guilty or liable for what's taking place and put it on Abishai. And let me tell you, David would be just as guilty as Abishai if he does anything to Saul in this moment. And also, this is a learning moment for Abishai. And so moving on in the text. And David in his prior display of mercy, what did it do to Saul's heart? Did David's mercy from chapter 4 change Saul's heart at all? No. The answer to that is no. You can see it in Saul continuing to pursue, continuing to go after him. How do you respond in those moments? Right, because we're about to see how is David going to respond? What is leading David in this? Because oftentimes when there are moments like this, and I've got to be honest with you, where it's like I've displayed mercy, I've shown grace, right, to someone, and it's not maybe reciprocated. Or it's not, uh, it, when it's given, it's not led to change in someone else. I can tell you what happens in my heart. I can tell you what happens in my actions. It's not what happens to David. His mercy that is rejected is not met with, well, now you deserve it. Now you deserve. See, I gave you one chance. Well, you know, one strike, okay. Two strikes, no more. You see, David's restraint was rooted completely in his trust of God. David's restraint is rooted completely in his trust of God. David didn't know how the Lord would deal with Saul. Saul. 
All he knew is that the Lord would deal with Saul. And he knew that taking Saul's life, David knew that taking Saul's life was out of order. And David will not take the kingdom by force and in his own power and in his own strength. And something we have said repeatedly in 1 Samuel, because it's just the author illuminates it, is this, trusting in God. You need to hear this. Trusting in God means believing that God's promises will come to pass in God's timing and in God's way. And David is putting that on display here. And so... Get this scene. David and Abishai are sneaking down into this, the 3,000 soldiers, into the center. And what do they take? They take the spear that's by Saul's head and the water. Now, I could preach a whole sermon on those two things. They take the spear because that represents the power and the authority that Saul believes he wields. David takes it. Not the same way that he takes in 24 and cuts the garment, okay? This is very different. He takes the spear, and then he takes Saul's water. What does water represent? Water here represents Saul's way of living, his life, his source of life. Listen, in the desert, in this wilderness area, listen, water was a scarce commodity, so he takes his power and his source of life, and he retreats back and out of it. Think about that. And then verse 12, look at this. As they're going through here, the author makes a very interesting point. He says, so David took the spear and the jug of water from Saul's head, and they went away. So come in, come out. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep. Why? Because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Some of you are experiencing that right now. (laughs) Some of you... Wish you could experience that, right? And I want to make the point here of who is protecting David. Who is the one protecting and leading David even in this moment? God is. God is the center of this text. God is the one who allowed David and Abishai to go through the 3,000 men all the way to the center to get the spear, to get the water, and come all the way back out. God is the one who is protecting David in all arenas, in all fashions. Who is protecting David with Goliath? God is. Who's protecting David when he's tempted with this or with that? God is. He is the one. And no one else could see it. Isn't that crazy? I'm sure Abishai and David just thought, man, these guys are hard sleepers. Like, let's just go. Like, they didn't make it to the center because they were stealthy and awesome, okay? They made it to the center and back out because God allowed it. Because he's sovereign over all things, including sleep and including David's steps. God is sovereign over all things. In your life, And in my life, the one who is holding us, listen, we could probably set a mic up here and just give example after example of ways in which God has protected, God has led, God has moved in our lives. And in the moment, you couldn't see it, but stepping back out, you can see it clearly like we just did in the text here. So they're in this deep sleep. And this reminded me of Proverbs 21, one of my favorite um, verses 30 and, and 31. It talks about how we prepare the horse for the day of battle. You know, you know that um, 
But what does it say at the end? As we prepare the horse, listen, David and Abishai had to go into the center. They went in. That was purposeful. There was something that they were participating in, okay? But the victory, salvation, belongs to who? The Lord. Prepare the horse for the day of battle. Get it ready. Get yourself ready. But understand this. Protection and victory and salvation belongs to one, and that's the Lord. But there's also someone else, two people particularly in this, Saul and Abner. Saul's asleep in the middle of the story. Who's protecting Saul? Well, I can tell you who it should have been. Abner. Abner's sole job was to protect Saul. And David, after peeling back, verse, verse 15 just kind of cracks me up, so I'll share it with you. And David said to Abner, are you not a man? Like one soldier to another, like you probably shouldn't say that. But he's questioning Abner because he's going, your job was to protect Saul and you failed. You failed. I came in there with Abishai and I could have killed him. You failed at your job. Who protects Saul? Well, Abner failed at his job. Who protected him? Yeah, God did. God protected Saul's life in this scene. And if you wanted to point to an earthly figure that protected Saul's life, it's the guy who Saul's pursuing to kill, David. And David talks to Abner and goes, that was your job, that was your duty, and you failed at it. I had the power to do this, and I didn't because I'm faithful to God. God is sovereign over all things. You see, we have a tendency to lean into false saviors, false protectors, abners, if you will, in our life. Things that we think will insulate us. 3,000 soldiers, a warrior beside us while we sleep. Maybe for us, it's the savior of success. Maybe the savior of, of, of family or of relationships. Listen, all of those things are not intrinsically evil. They just make terrible saviors. You see, Abner, 3,000 soldiers, were absolutely insufficient to actually protect Saul. Only God is the one who gives victory, who gives life. Abner and 3,000 soldiers are no match for a God who can put them into a deep sleep in a moment. And then going through the rest of the text, there's this conversation between, the last one in fact, between Saul and David. These are the last words exchanged between them. And the conversation is very similar to their last one in 24. So I'm not even going to teach through necessarily their conversation because it is so similar and what they go back and forth in. But I think what is distinguishing in this is the final words. In verse 22, and David answered, answering Saul, he says, here is the spear, O king. Let one of your young men come over and take it. I think this is very profound that David is going, my faith is not in these means. In power, here's your spear, take it back, Saul. I don't even want it. And the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. 
And I think this is so profound. Verse 24, his last words to Saul, Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he, God, deliver me out of all tribulation. So he's going, Saul, your life was precious in my sight. Here's who I want my life to be precious in, the sight of the Lord. In God's sight. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. This is a guy five plus years in the run in the wilderness. Verse 23, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. Now, you can read that one of two ways. The first is you can read it and say, well, the Lord is rewarding David for his righteousness in this scene, his faithfulness in this scene. To which I would say, you're not wrong. David has been righteous in this scene. David has been faithful to God. But you need to look at the qualifier before the word righteousness and faithfulness. And the Lord rewarding for whose? His. His faithfulness. His righteousness. So that is the very anchor of this whole text that the character and nature of our God is his righteousness and his faithfulness to his people. And so let me tell you, if that is his character, if those are hallmarks to his character, righteousness and faithfulness, those are the hallmarks to his people's character, faithfulness and righteousness. For David, two distinguishing Two distinguishing hallmarks in his life will always be his righteousness and his faithfulness. Now listen, he will not always get it right. But that is in light of God's perfect righteousness and perfect faithfulness. Listen, this is Romans 14. This is Romans 1. If you continue to go into your New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5.21, it talks about just us being clothed in what? God's righteousness. It's his righteousness, it's his faithfulness that is the anchor for our lives and for our living. And then we get chapter 27. You're like, Kyle, you got like four minutes to hit 27. (laughs) Chapter 27, in light of chapter 26, I think teaches us a very simple point. Look at verse one. Uh, okay, back, back up right before that, actually. Saul's last words to David. Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed at them. Sounds like a fortune cookie, right? <laughs> but those are the words from Saul to David. And that's it. You think David's, let's pause right here. You think David's riding high right now? Uh, again, I probably would be. Like, I just walked through 3,000 men. Saul, we had this back and forth. He knows where I stand. He's seen the faithfulness. Look at verse one. Then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. What in the world? What in the actual world is going on? Like you just had this amazing moment, probably this euphoric high of faith, and and you had this conversation with Saul. You called out Abner, right? And then you come to chapter 27, and he's like, I'm going to perish. I'm going to die at Saul's hand. 
And then you'll read the rest of 27. And I, I would love for you to do that this week. Read the rest of 27. And it is this complicated, complex text of how David is now exiled into the Philistines' land, right? Leading and, 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 and going to war and deceiving Achish, the king of the Philistines. And you're like, hold on. Like, is David lying? Is David being cunning? Is he being shrewd? Is, he, is, is this a positive thing? Is this a negative thing? And let me tell you, the text doesn't tell us. The text just simply gives us the narrative. This is what happened. But what the text does is it gives us in verse one, a picture into David's heart. In chapter 27 begins what, what's called the ascension passages, the, the ascension chapters, where David is now ascending to the throne that he's been anointed. And let me tell you, David's ascension to take the throne that he's been anointed in, I'm going to give it one word, complicated. It is complicated. And as we come to these texts over the next couple of weeks, and as we put the backdrop of 27 on 26, I actually think that is the author's intent to hold chapter 26 in this euphoric high in this moment beside chapter 27 to go, listen to me, the life of faith is not so mechanical. It's not so cut and dry. It is one that is absolutely complicated and complex. And you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to understand that. Listen, I have a propensity in my own heart and my own life to make things really mechanical. Okay, A plus B equals C. Let me just show you the map of David in the wilderness again. Do you remember him running? And I've told you this week after week, that's what our lives of faith look like. Not a straight line, not up and to the right. And here in 27, at the beginning of it, you see David wrestling with his own heart. It says that he says to his own heart, I'm surely gonna perish. He's despairing. And, this, and here's where I wanna end. I just wanna end with two pastoral notes. The first is this, that despair does not mean you don't have faith. That if there is despair in your life, that doesn't mean you have faith. Now, there are certain theological movements and streams that would say, well, you know, you increase your faith and then this goes. No, listen, it's not about the amount of faith you have. It's about the object of your faith. And so clearly what we've seen in 26 and all the prior chapters, the object of David's faith is Yahweh, is God alone but still he has despair in his heart. And so the interesting thing here is he speaks to his heart. And he says some things that have forgotten two, I think, primary things. And when we despair, we forget these same two primary things. He has forgotten the word of God, the promises of God. And the second thing, secondarily to that, he's forgotten, is his past experiences of God's faithfulness. So his heart is despairing. Unlike Psalm 42. Can you give that to me, Keith? This is another moment where David speaks to his heart. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise and multitude-keeping festivals. So he's talking about right there like a worshiping, just a, a group of people worshiping God together. I remember he, go, he goes, I'm speaking to my heart. I'm saying to my heart about reminding my heart about this moment. And then he speaks very honestly. And he goes, why are you downcast, oh my soul? And why are you in turmoil with me? 
Some of you, that is right where you are. Why, why is my soul so downcast? Why is my heart so wrestling within me? And here's what David speaks to his heart in this moment. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. That's what he speaks to his heart. That's what he says to his soul. And some of you, and when we take communion, I'm going to leave that up there for just a moment for you to read and for you to speak to your own heart that, why are you downcast? Lord, you are my hope and my salvation. And the second pastoral point is this. Um, and this is where we'll end. Um, and this is probably the most uh, simple point I've ever made in the history of my preaching. Uh, life is full of complexities. Can we just acknowledge that? Can we just acknowledge that life is complicated? That it's not so black and white and mechanical like we like to make it? I mean, even think about our scriptures. We have the book of Proverbs. Work, work, work. Here's what you do. This is what work looks like. Good work. You know, uh, sloth is bad. All, all those things. We have the book of Ecclesiastes going, it's all vain. It's all vanity. We've got the book of Job, Right? And you're like, well, this just blows up everything, right? And, and, and so we have this, and I think the point that God is trying to make is going, yes, here's what it requires, faith. It requires your life and all of its complexities, all of its ups, all of its downs, all of its turns and twists, both the expected and unexpected, require faith. Require to you, like in chapter 26, David going, listen, what is going to lead me above all else is my trust in Yahweh, my trust in God alone. I mean, in one chapter, we have David, a man full of righteousness and faithfulness, with a spear and a jug. And then in 27, the very next chapter, David wondering if he's even going to make it. Exiled in a pagan land for, it says, a year and what, four months? Because of someone else's sin. Can you imagine what that would do to your heart and your mind? You see, David's way to his throne is complicated. I want to fast forward a thousand years later after this. Jesus' way to his throne. The ultimate king, the ultimate deliverer, was his way. We've preached through two of the gospels, Matthew and Mark here. Cut and dry, uncomplicated, simple. No, not at all. And listen, when I say complex and complicated, I don't mean that there aren't absolutes. There are absolutes in the scriptures. But I'm talking about the life of faith. That Jesus' way, this ultimate king, this ultimate deliverer is one that would die exiled as well exiled from his father, exiled from everything he had ever known, so much so that in Mark 15, he would cry out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you, why have you exiled me? Why have you forsaken me? And why did God choose to exile his son? You got it. So that we as exiles could be brought home that we could be brought in. And let me tell you, just fast forwarding even in Samuel, David will be brought back in. David will be brought back into the land. 
David will be brought back in and placed on his throne. And so we handed you communion. So take it out. Um, and our hosts and our ushers, they'll walk the aisles. This is, this is new for us. Typically we walk and take it, uh, but we're going to try it in this way. And if you don't have it, you can just kind of lift up your hands um, and, and uh, thank you. That was me lifting my hand because I forgot to get it. That as we prepare to take this, um, the scriptures tell us to do it with the right heart and the right mind and not in an unworthy way. So God, what would an unworthy way mean? Well, one, an unworthy way would be you thinking that you earned your salvation, that you earned coming back into, quote unquote, the land, if you will. You'll never see that with David. You won't see him earning his way back into Israel. He's brought there by the sovereign hand of God. We were brought into the family of God by the sovereign hand of God, by the outstretched arms of his son, whose body was broken for us, whose blood was shed for us. Also an unworthy way of taking communion would be us not realizing and recognizing and not responding to the forgiveness of sin that is available to us in Christ Jesus. For unbeliever and believer alike. So if you're here and you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, listen, you can't earn entry into the kingdom of God. You can't good work your way there. The Bible says that the only way into the kingdom of God is through the king, through the one king, Jesus. You see in these, in First and Second Samuel, we see these lowercase k kings. David is a pointer to the capital K king, Jesus. And believer, we keep coming back in desperation to our king. Lord, lead us. Father, give us the faith to live this life of faith in a complex world, in a complex situation, in things, in, in turmoil and tragedy and triumph and success and our things that just make it complex. Lord, we need you. Show us what it means to live by faith. Thank God that when we are saved, God gives us his spirit to lead us, that he gives us his word. And so we come this morning preparing our hearts to take communion. And so I want you to stand with me. And this is the only thing we do here at the Parks Church that's closed. And what I mean by closed is that this is, as I described, this meal is for believers, those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that invitation is out there for you this morning. This is a meal of invitation. Receive Christ and receive this this morning. And so on the night in which Jesus was betrayed after giving thanks, he took bread and he broke it. And he said to his disciples, as he says to us, this is my broken body for you. Let's take it. And in the same manner and fashion, Jesus took the cup and he said that this cup represents my blood shed for you, 
This blood is the new covenant. The old is fulfilled. The new has come, Jesus says. Do this in remembrance of that, and we do it today. In church, the only fitting response after communion is what? Worship. Worship. Let's pray right now and worship to God. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Father, we thank you that our one true king has come, that he is the one who is with us, that he is the one who has saved us and reconciled us back to you from exile, back into the family of God. And so, Lord, I pray for our lives here. Father, as we are sojourners in this world until we come home, Father, I pray that you would lead us and guide us by the power of your Holy Spirit through your word. Father, I pray for those who are navigating certain complexities, certain difficulties, certain situations. Lord, I pray that they would uniquely sense your spirit this week. Father, let us honor you with every inch and fiber of who we are, I pray. We love you. It's for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen Amen. and amen.